Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jaap Henk Hopman about his new book, Privacy is Hard and Seven Other Myths, Achieving Privacy Through Careful Design. An expert on computer privacy and security shows how we can build privacy into the design of of systems from the start. We are tethered to our devices all day, every day, leaving data trails of our searches, posts, clicks, and communications. Meanwhile, governments and businesses collect our data and use it to, to monitor us without our knowledge. So we have resigned ourselves to the belief that privacy is hard. Choosing to believe that websites do not share our information, for example, and declaring that we have nothing to hide anyway. In this informative and illuminating book, a computer computer privacy and security expert argues that privacy is not that hard if we build it into the design of systems from the start. Hopman suggests technical fixes, discussing pseudonyms, leaky design, encryption, metadata, and the benefits of keeping your data local on your own device only, and outlines privacy design strategies that system designers can apply now. Well, Yap Heng, welcome to the show. Thank you, Galina. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was just wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work? And maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Well, I mean, this this impacted uh, my work as a teacher at university, of course, uh, immediately. Uh, Suddenly we had to teach online and suddenly all the uh, things we used to do in physical presence, uh, we had to do online. Uh, Most of the universities here in the Netherlands switched to Zoom. Um, And then that was interesting because there are some privacy issues with Zoom. And in general, the fact that you are suddenly uh, required to use a cloud-based infrastructure is something that you would rather avoid. So this is something where uh, the the, the kind of topics that I talk about in the book um, immediately became much more apparent. Um, And of course, working from home uh, and and those kind of stuff, it it really makes life different. And then it's even more important that the tools that you use are uh, respectful of, of your basically your, your, your wishes and ethics and norms. Did you manage to adjust well? And do you think you will retain some of the things that you have well, uh, used? To be entirely honest, for me, teaching is really uh, something that I enjoy doing uh, like in front of a real class. Um, mm. And I guess it, it depends a bit on the class or the size of the class and the kind of groups you have. Uh, but for most of the classes that I've been teaching the last year to one and a half years it's basically like you know talking to a to to a black 
dark screen. You don't really mm. see the students. Most of them will have the video shut, shut off also for actually privacy reasons, which is interesting, I guess. Um, so for me, I, I really look forward to being teaching, to be able to teach again in like in real life. And uh, it looks like we will be able to do so. So uh, that's good. Um, of course, I mean, it saves on travel. Uh, for me personally, I work at two different universities. Uh, one is like a, a two and a half hour commute from where I live. Um, so that, of course, is a benefit if you can do more things uh, from home. But I've, I was used to working at home from that respect. So, and that's, apart from the teaching, um, I already was working from home a lot, um, and I will continue to do that. Excellent. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes. Well, um, so I'm uh, uh, I'm Dutch. I, I live in the north of the Netherlands in a large student town called Groningen. Um, I. Uh, I basically lived here uh, in the north of the Netherlands for, for all my life. I was, I was born here, uh, raised in a village like 50 kilometers, or actually I should say a city, 50 kilometers from here. Um, and uh, I studied computer science. Um, this was basically uh, that, that I was already interested in computers like, like a long, long, long time ago. I, I still remember that my father, who was a math teacher, he, um, uh, he, the, the, his school had a few uh, uh, computers, like personal computers, the first personal computers, pre-IBM computers, actually, um, for school use. And they were afraid that they would be stolen when they would leave the computers um, in the school during uh, holidays. So during mm. the holidays, uh, the math teachers who were supposed to give computer science kind of like uh, education to a few students, they brought the computers back home. So this is when I got to see the first computer at home. I think I was 13. Um, my mom said that I, I used to play with this thing all the time. And um, my first, well, not my own computer, it was the house computer, it was an Acorn Electron, and I started programming. And then I was hooked. Uh, and that's why I studied uh, computer science. Um, uh, I did uh, a PhD in computer science in, uh, in Amsterdam, in a completely different field, by the way, in distributed algorithms. Uh, studying, interestingly enough, studying something called uh, fault-tolerant uh, computing and Byzantine agreement. And back then, that was a completely theoretical uh, branch of computer science. But the people that uh, know a little bit about Bitcoin uh, know that agreement protocols, consensus protocols, are a core part of Bitcoin. So suddenly, the stuff that I have been doing like 30 years ago is, is suddenly uh, very relevant for a lot of people. But that's a completely different field. That's something that I've not been busy studying or researching for a long time. So how did you get interested in the computer privacy and security? Uh, well, the, the interesting thing is that uh, a lot of the people that studied or was, were working in distributed algorithms were also people uh, working in uh, cryptography. And actually at the institute that I was working, uh, the CWI, there was also a, a group next to ours uh, that was the cryptography group. and. For those people that know the, the privacy field a little bit, uh, the, the group leader back then was David Chaum. And David Chaum was one of the people that invented a lot of privacy-preserving uh, technolo technologies actually back in the day that I was working there. But back then, I didn't do anything in that field, but I was sort of aware of the, the relationship between distributed algorithms and that kind of thinking and, and the cryptography security kind of thinking. So after my PhD, I started working for a uh, industry research lab of the, the Dutch Telco um, in the security group. Uh, 
And uh, after that, uh, I quickly returned to academia because I like academia better than really applied research. Uh, I do think that it's important to have like a, a link with industry and doing like relevant research, relevant for mm. society, but not at an industry lab, but really at academia. Uh, so I returned to academia and there I slowly moved from security to privacy, basically. Um, and that's what I've been doing for the last, I guess, 20 years now. So did uh, your mentors play any roles along your career journey? And maybe you can have uh, some advice for our career, uh, early career researchers? Um, yeah, of course. I'm, of course, like you, your mentors play, play an important, a very important role. Um, and not only your, your mentors, but also your peers, actually, maybe even more than your mentors. It's, it's a whole group, actually. So I still mm. remember at CWI the fact that you, um, you had... We basically would have sessions just sitting in front of the, the back then still a blackboard with chalk and just throwing ideas to each other and, and uh, criticizing them or supporting them and, and in that way getting the, the, the best possible results. Um, and I guess back then the mentor had a very like uh, hands-off kind of attitude, like as, as, as long as the group was doing whatever seemed to be the right direction, um, he was okay with it. So there was a, there was a kind of like, um, rough direction of research that that I was supposed to be working in, but he gave me a lot of freedom in deciding what to do, and I think that is important for for uh, for students, PhD students, and people that do research that they really pick the the topic that they they really want to devote all their energy and attention to, and that's also something that I say say to my PhD students or people that apply for a, for a job at our institute, and I always ask like, why do you do this and uh, it really should come from 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 your heart. You really should be mm. really willing to study this topic because, like, uh, you're you're probably going to spend way more than the forty hours a, a week that you're supposed to spend on it. And uh, it is very very doubtful whether you can actually uh, you know continue with this line of work uh, in the rest of your career, and that whether you will you know, you you will make a lot of money or anything or get a lot of status out of it. So you reach. It's really an itch that you you want to you should be able you want to scratch let's say, and the other advice that I got and that I also give to my, my students that was the advice of my PhD uh, supervisor. He basically said that if you if you go into research, it's in, it's almost a it's a bit like and I guess the metaphor doesn't really work in all, all countries, but here in the Netherlands at least it works. He basically said like do as the cows do. I mean a cow will never go to an empty field because probably the grass is not really nice not good not edible let's say whereas if the, if the if the field is full of cows there's the grass is probably good but there's too many cows so it will be mm. trampled there will be no good grass for you to eat so he basically said like go somewhere where there's a few cows but not too many in other words like go into an, an area of research where some people did some interesting work so you you know that there's some more interesting results to be found but don't go like in, in, in an area where everybody and all, especially all the, 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 the famous guys, the good guys uh, and, and guys in, in, the, in, the, in the women, uh, men kind of sense, like general, uh, they, uh, where they all are, because then it's too crowded and you will, you will have too much competition. So that's, that, that was, that's an advice, advice. That, also, <laughs> that I got. And that I, yeah, for, I, I think it works that, that way. And for me, at least, that has always worked that way. And uh, so I, I always tell that to my PhD students and, and others as well. So uh, in your, your latest book, Privacy is Hard and Seven, Seven Other Myths brings all of your expertise together in a very accessible way to readers. 
about the privacy uh, in online world. So can you tell us what is your book about? Yeah, so the, 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 the book is about the, actually two things. The book is about the, the fact that technology and the technological developments, especially in, in the era, area of computers and networks, has had a tremendous negative effect on our privacy. I mean, it is much easier to collect a lot of personal information about us. But, and this is, I think, the, the new part of the, the more significant part of the book, um, the fact that technology can also be used to help protect our privacy. And the reason for me to write this book was the fact that I there's many, many books um, from all kinds of disciplines uh, about the, the problem of privacy, how it is eroded, um, and why that has a problem. Then there's also a few books, especially from legal people, that talk about the, the possible ways that law can protect uh, privacy and, and how you should do that. But there were very, very few books about how technology could also uh, protect privacy. And my aim with this book was really to, to, um, to show to a general public, and this is why I made it, wrote it in a very accessible way, uh, to, to allow people to understand how that technology work, works and why that technology has such a bad effect on our privacy. And then also to, to show them how basically by, by a different way of thinking, and this is the idea of privacy by design, by, by thinking about it in a different way, and especially by designing systems in a different way, you basically have the same functionality, uh, but without the privacy infringement that the, the say the, the fastest or the most obvious way of implementing stuff um, would otherwise achieve. Um, and I was reminded by, uh, by a quote from, from Yogi Berra, uh, who, who has reportedly said uh, that you can observe a lot by just watching. And I think one of the things that my book wants to do is by allowing people to watch, by allowing them to observe, because they know how to look at the system. And you know, most of, for most of the people that look at technology, and especially IT technology, it's opaque. It's like it's a black box, and I have no idea how it works and why it works the way it works. And I, what I try to do is sort of give them a kind of like feeling of how to peel off that 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 black box a bit and have a have an understanding of how the technology works and how that works for them and how that works against them. So, what is exactly meant by privacy? What is it? Um, yeah. So, what is privacy? That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a very difficult that uh, difficult question, to be honest. Um, uh, several law scholars have written books about that, and uh, I think uh, one of them, Daniel Solove basically has said that you cannot really give a definition of privacy because any definition that you give is either too broad or too narrow. Um, and what I've done in my book uh, is basically link uh, different definitions of privacy to um, the, uh, say, the history of technological development. And I think this is, uh, th this is also a key part of understanding what's happening is that, uh, that what privacy is depends on the world that we live in and especially the kind of protection or the kinds of risks that, that happen uh, depend on the technology and the state of technology in a particular point in time. And therefore also the, the kinds of protections that you need to develop or uh, implement depend on that. And uh, so the, 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 the traditional um, story is uh, uh, about um, uh, the first conception of 
of privacy as the right to be let alone by uh, Warren and Brandeis to legal scholars from the 19th century. And basically they, they, they formulated that right as a right to be let alone because of a technological development, actually two developments, namely the invention of the, um, uh, not, uh, not the invention, but the fact that photography became easier because photo, uh, cameras became smaller and easier to operate. So that meant that more people had a camera and could take pictures in more or less public places. And the second thing was that printing became cheaper. And therefore, uh, cities like Boston and, and, and others in, in the U.S. Uh, uh, had uh, local newspapers, like local, local city gazettes, so to speak. And they had pictures in them. Mm. And suddenly, things that happened on the street that used to be private, because you mean people would see them by walking, uh, walking by, but they, will, they would not be recorded um, in a way. And now suddenly, they would appear in print. And... Um, and what Warren and Brandeis foresaw was uh, something that they said, like what, uh, and, and I think it's written in the paper, something like uh, what used to be whispered in the closet will soon be shouted from the rooftops. So the, technolo- the, the te- technological developments um, um, let, lead to the fact that it's easier to see what's happening somewhere and to learn about that. And for them, that was an infringement of what they call privacy. Now, that was in the in the uh, later part of the 19th century. Now, if you go to the say the say the second part of the the 20th century, you see that computers uh, are invented and being deployed. The databases are being deployed, and uh, you get uh, governments, especially governments, interested in collecting more information about their citizens because of administration purposes. And then uh, you have like census and these kind of things where people are asked more and more detailed questions about their lives for governing purposes. And then suddenly, the, 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 the say that the understanding of privacy changes and it becomes more like, hey, but if I give information to the government, that, that might be okay, but I should have some control over how it is going to be used and who that data is being shared with. So then mm-hmm. privacy is defined differently as... Uh, informational self-determination. Now, so you see that these these understandings and definitions of privacy is really changes with technological developments. And then uh, the uh, the last example, which I think is is very interesting, is uh, with the um, um, the birth of social networks and uh, Web 3.0, where um, people are not only consumers of information, but also actually producers of information, your status updates on, on Twitter or pictures on Facebook or Instagram or, or Snapchat or WhatsApp, suddenly um, these networks are sort of mediating this, this information. And whereas uh, in the old days, let's say 30, 40 years ago, if I wanted to portray a certain identity or a brand or whatever uh, as a person or as a, as a company, um, I myself had a lot of control about over this, but now if if, if you or any of the people listening uh, are interested in who I am, the first thing they will do is they they will run to Google and they will start searching. And now that means that instead of me having control over my identity, how you perceive me, it's Google who determines Mm -hmm. what is the first search result. And I have no influence over this. 
or at least very little, unless I do things like search engine optimization. Maybe some companies do that, but you know, I, I cannot afford that. I don't do that. So what you get to see about me is something that Google decides. And therefore, uh, there's a different definition of, of, of privacy, uh, which is linked to this construction of identity, um, basically saying that uh, privacy is the, is the uh, is not having unreasonable constraints on the construction of your identity. Now, that's a very complex definition, but what it in essence says is that there shouldn't be intermediaries that have very strong control over how you perceive me. I should have enough control, I should have enough influence over this so that I can sort of like um, stage, play my identity. So this definition is interesting because of the fact that it relates to social networks. It's also interesting because it shows that privacy is also related to to the social sciences, construction of identity, and and not only, for instance, to, to the... The, the, the legal uh, scholars and, and, and not only to technology uh, because that's the only infringement that happens. So you see that it, that makes privacy very interdisciplinary. So based on what you just described about privacy, is it hard to maintain? Uh, at the moment, yes. Mm. Yes, because there's, uh, 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 even though there's uh, laws and regulations that try, have tried to push uh, back a little bit. The problem is that there's uh, a few large corporations uh, that collect a lot of personal information about us, Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, and, and others. And uh, the same is uh, um, happens with uh, our governments. Like Governments rely more and more on, on collecting information about their citizens. So uh, the, un- the amount of information that, that governments and, and companies have about us is much, much larger uh, and much, much more detailed than, uh, say, 30, 40 years ago. So in that sense, Mm. maintaining your own privacy is hard because you have very little tools. So I think part of the the, the point in this book also is that you should not push the responsibility for maintaining privacy to individuals because we are totally not equipped to do that. It's... It should be something that uh, is done in the networks, in the computers, in the applications, in the apps that, that the industry develops, that uh, governments use, that uh, service providers use. Um, so we as a society should really push back against this and, and basically say, look, if you design these systems in a different way, you still can do what you can do, what you want to do, but in a much less privacy infringing way. Um, one, one, one maybe extreme example is, is, for instance, a network like Facebook. That's a social network. Now, the, the whole point of a social network is to connect individual people, right? So why is it that it is organized as a giant, gi- gigantic star network where each individual basically shares all the information that you want to share with, with somebody else with Facebook? Mm. A central server who then redistributes that information to others. That's a particular design choice that maybe, you know, from, from the perspective of Facebook, it makes sense. It's, it's also, of course, a bit easier in a technological sense to do it this way. But there's also a big business reason because this, this way they also get the information and that's how they make money. So the business model steers the design. But it's entirely uh, conceptually possible 
to think about a much more federated or even peer-to-peer -peer network where essentially my phone will be talking to your phone to inform you of a status update that I uh, posted on my phone. There's no, technologically speaking, no real need to have a central server doing all the, the doing all the storing, storing and all the forwarding. So this is just, just one example um, uh, why it is, as an individual, hard to maintain your privacy because you know there's only a few tools that you that you uh, that you can use. Um, there's also the the kind of network effect, like if everybody is on WhatsApp or if everybody is on Facebook, then you also should be on Facebook because otherwise you're disconnected, you're nowhere. Um, so if you if you want to change, then that's how to change it. That means that they have to do the change. So in that sense, it's hard, but. I guess the, the sort of like meta message of the book is that it really isn't that hard for them to change it. I mean, from a technological perspective, you can do it in a different way. And I think that's the important message of the book. So we hear this uh, term uh, privacy quite a few times during each day of our life, I think, uh, nowadays. But there are still a couple of things that we don't really understand about it. Uh, so, and there are a few myths that surround it as well. So, which ones do you debunk in your book? Um, so, yeah. So, the, the the what I do in my book is I discuss uh, uh, eight uh, myths, um, and uh, there's, um, I guess, maybe it's interesting to discuss just uh, just a few uh, few of them. Mm -hmm. um, so, one of the one of the most uh, uh, I guess famous myth is the the you. You don't have uh, anything to hide uh, argument. And so why do you want privacy? Because, you know, what do you have to hide? Uh, is, a, is, a is a common uh, argument against uh, privacy. Um, and uh, what I show in the book is, uh, and, and that and this is based on, on work. And in, in essence, a lot of the stuff that I'm writing about in the book is really based on, uh, on the work of many, many other people that have been studying this topic in, in the last 30, 40 years. Um, but what I, but, but the main argument is, is that um, but, uh, this, this, this idea of, okay, you don't have anything to hide, is um, that it is a question of, um, say, uh, obvious bad things or mm. illegal things that you want to hide if you want to have privacy. But this is, of course, not the case. Huh? So if you are, um, uh, for instance, suppose that you're, suppose that you're, um, you're gay and uh, you're not ready to tell your parents yet, but you may uh, maybe have already told a few friends. Mm. Does that mean that your parents should automatically also know that you're gay? No, I mean, this is something that you should be able to, to decide to reveal to them whenever you are ready for that. This is one example. Other example is like, um, suppose you're, 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 you're working um, at a, um, wherever, uh, you have a nice job, but you know, occasionally you think, right, nah, maybe I should change jobs. And you, you look around a bit, you, know, you talk to a few people. Um, it will be very, very yeah, difficult, so to speak, if, if your boss would find out, right? I mean, you're suddenly, suddenly he has the feeling or she has the feeling that you no longer want to work there mm. and then you will be treated differently. And that's maybe not really the point. You're just, you're just looking around and people do that all the time. And in a much more fundamental level, and this is also something that I discuss in the book, is that the, um, um, 
the whole concept of of an identity of an I that is separate from others is the fact that you have your own thoughts, you have your privacy of your own uh, uh, ideas, thoughts, and, and, and feelings and desires that you, at whatever point in time, decide to reveal to others or not. So this is this is part of the reason why this is a, a flawed argument. Um, and the the uh, the uh, other part is that it is for, it's a sort of like it's, it's a nice rhetorical trick, really. The the the, the you don't have anything to, you you don't have anything to hide. It basically tries to uh, put privacy uh, as a uh, individual right or a, yeah as an individual right, whereas for instance something like health or security is something that has a societal value. But this to- totally ignores the fact that privacy is also something that has a societal value. I mean, you you cannot have a democracy without people being able to discuss um, uh, the current state of the fair affairs without interference by their government. Think about uh, f- uh, um, women voting rights or mm. or gay rights or uh, these kind of things. These 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 whole movements first had to start in a in a in a in a in a in a democratic society where they have privacy so that they can discuss this with like-minded people before you know going open about it and this, so this is just to show us a few examples of how why privacy is also of uh, of societal value and not just an individual value so this is one of the myths that i i debunk um Another uh, myth related uh, to, to that is the, the myth that security and privacy are a zero-sum game. So this is often, eh, it's a bit related to the previous myth, but it's often said that um, security, uh, you either are able to secure a system or offer security, or you have privacy, but not both. The idea being a little bit that in order to have security, and in particular, things like Homeland Security, you need uh, to collect a lot of information to, for instance, identify terrorists and these kind of things. Whereas uh, privacy would then be mean that all kinds of personal data is uh, hidden from any uh, from any uh, view by others. And this is all um, related to this this um, uh, you have nothing to hide myth. This is a false uh, false. Uh, uh, yeah, how do you say? Um, this is a false. Yeah, dichotomy. Yes, thank you. Yeah, um, so it's not that you um, you have either security or privacy. It's just that you have to think a little bit more in order to make systems that are both privacy friendly and secure. Um, and in the book, I discuss several uh, examples of of architectures or systems that that show that this is possible. And uh, one example is is maybe an interesting example to discuss here is uh, actually an, a system for digital cash that David Chaum that I talked about uh, uh, before, um, who was in Amsterdam at the CWI, where I was a PhD student uh, back then. He invented, actually, he, the, the, the company he founded, DigiCash, was actually in a building next door in Amsterdam. Um, mm. uh, they, so what, what he, he discovered, or what he um, developed, was a form of uh, digital money that was uh, unforgeable, and of course, money should not be forgeable; otherwise, it's not it's not useful. Um, it was, but it was also uh, untraceable, and in that sense, the digital money worked just as paper money. Yeah? If you have paper money or coins, 
you can spend them in a, uh, at the shop and you get you get them from the bank or the, the automatic teller machine uh, and uh, at the end of the day the the supermarket doesn't know who they got the money uh, from and your bank doesn't know where you spend it because you you basically get the money from the ATM and you spend it at the shop and that's untraceable now if you most of the current electronic payment uh, schemes by, by credit card or if you use a payment card are traceable eh? because they're, they are account-based. So every transaction can, in principle, be linked to you. Now, this is the, the reason why this is the case is that it is um, uh, somewhat hard to prevent uh, digital money from being copied. Right? Mm-hmm. A, a paper uh, a, a paper. Uh, or a coin or paper money, they have kind of like watermarks and stuff that make it hard to make a, a paper copy or a physical copy. And it's hard. It's not impossible. But it's hard enough to, you know, uh, disincentivize this. But of course, if, if money is only a bit string on your computer, it's easy to copy, right? So, so how do you prevent this copying? The easy way to do that is to link these things to an account, but then the money becomes traceable. So what, what David Schaum invented was a kind of digital money, digital coins that you could spend without being linked. However, if at some point you would spend the same coin twice, your name would be revealed. So apparently, and this is a, a technical trick that David Schaum invented, the trick was that he could embed your name in a coin in such a way that if you only spend it once, your name is private, nobody sees it. But if you spend the same coin twice, your name appears. Mm. Now, the magic behind it is a bit hard to explain in this podcast, but it shows that by using some, some uh, technological tricks, you get privacy, namely the system is unlinkable, but you also get security, namely you cannot spend coins twice. Now, and there's, there's more examples in the book that I discuss. Um, I guess the uh, one last myth, maybe uh, there's more myths that are discussed in the book, um, but uh, is the, the, the question of uh, whether you're collecting personal data or not. Men, and, and the myth that I, I discuss in the book is we are not collecting personal data. This is something that many companies, at least until a few years ago, uh, very often said, like um, IP address. Well, no, this is not personal data. Uh, license plates? No, that's not personal data. Uh, the problem is that this is really based on a misunderstanding of what personal data is. We have the the sort of like the common idea is that personal data is only data that is um, immediately linked to a identifiable person. So my name links to the fact that I live in Groningen, or my name links to the fact that I have uh, this and this illness or this and this salary or this and this. But personal data is much more than that. If you look at the the, the definition of what personal data is in the, the general data protection regulation, the, the, the law that protects privacy in, in, uh, in Europe, the, the definition of personal data is broader. It basically says that personal data is any data that can be linked to an identifiable person either directly or indirectly so mm. even if you yourself cannot immediately link link my name to my ip address an ip address is still personal data because you can just go to my internet service provider and ask who is the owner of this ip address 
most in most of the cases, IP addresses are static. They are assigned to one particular house. So by just going to the ISP, you can discover the name of the person that is probably behind that IP address. So therefore, an IP address is personal data. And the same goes for things like license plates, because they are, you know, there's a national database in every country which, which registers the owner of a particular car. So because of that, also license plates are personal data. And there's many, many more examples. The problem is that up, at least up to uh, a few years ago, um, this was not very clear to people. And when it became clear to people, they were immediately, like, immediately shocked, like, oh, damn, um, IP addresses are personal data, but we all store and use IP addresses, and this is no longer allowed. Now, this is, of course, again, a misunderstanding uh, of what the law says. The law says that you are perfectly um, allowed to uh, collect and process personal data, but you have to do, do that in a responsible way. So mm. basically saying that, okay, I mean, if you collect IP addresses, that's fine but then you have to do it in a, in a responsible way. And then what is responsible depends a bit on the context, but one of the things that you, for instance, could do is uh, apply privacy by design to make sure that you do not um, uh, store the data for uh, for indefinite uh, amount of time. And also maybe not collect IP addresses if you really don't need them, these kind of things. So this is uh, coming back to the, the main topic of the, 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 the book and the, by designing your systems in a privacy-friendly way and doing that from the very, very start, I think this is an important thing to stress. And the, the whole idea of privacy by design is that if you want to have a privacy-friendly system, you have to design it in such... You have to basically think about how to design it uh, in a privacy-friendly way from the very start. So even before... Uh, writing down specifications, but the first concept of what should the function, what should the system do, and how should it roughly do that? These kind of decisions have a very, very, very big impact on whether this, the end result is the the service is privacy friendly or not. Not. And in the book, I discuss many technologies that can help you to make uh, the uh, the system more privacy friendly, and I explain also the to the the public at large that these choices are available. So showing them, showing the public that if organizations, if uh, companies, if uh, governments build systems, they have actually a choice to do that in a much more privacy-friendly way than they are doing at the moment. This is fascinating. I actually have a question which is somewhat related to what you you just described about collection of the personal information. What about the cookies? Because we started getting uh, these uh, choices on the websites uh, on, in Europe, uh, at least uh, now, where you can consent or decline cookies. And sometimes there's a whole list where you have to unclick. So does it make a difference in any way? The fact that you have now suddenly uh, the option to reject or accept cookies, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, again, this is the, the, in a way, this is the, uh, uh, an example of, of how you should not do it. Uh, because again, you move the decision to 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 mm-hmm. uh, to the individual, and uh, the problem there is that in many cases the uh, 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 there's not really a consent being asked. Because like consent, at least in a legal interpretation, is that it should be freely given. Now, in many cases, you get this pop up saying like accept the cookie, and then you get the service, or do not accept the cookie, and then you do not get the service. So this is not really a free choice, right? 
Mm. Uh, so this is in many cases problematic. But cookies are a very interesting example, actually, of the, um, and this is something that I also talk about uh, at length in the book, about the, the leakiness of the, the technology that we use. And I think this is something that uh, at some point has to change. Like the computers that we use, the networks that we use, have all been designed in the, say, the, the, the early second half of the last century, so 50 years ago. Back then, I think IBM had this projection that maybe they would sell a thousand computers. Networks, they were only considered as networks among military uh, organizations that knew each other. So, you know, security and especially privacy, that was, that was not an issue at all. Um, as a result, all these technologies, computers, networks, leak by default, a lot of information about what is happening on the network. So and then, mm. uh, the internet leaks the IP address of the, the person visiting a website. Why is that? Nobody thought about that as being a problem, but now suddenly it's a problem. Cookies, same example. They, they were invented for a, for a very good specific reason, namely to implement shopping carts for e-commerce websites. You have to, main, yeah, uh, technically speaking, maybe a bit technical, but the cookie is used to maintain some state, basically to allow a web server to record that some user selected to uh, buy a copy of my book and then go to the, the, the shopping cart and then track whether I, the person paid for the book. And because then you go to se several different pages on the website and each page is a different independent thing and you have to sort of track the, the user that is requesting that particular page. So you have to track whether which book he ordered, whether he paid, and what in the end the say the, the 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 shipping address is. This is what cookies were originally intended to be used for. Unfortunately, somebody at some point um, thought had the brilliant idea of using these cookies also for other purposes. In particular, to use these cookies to track uh, our um, say visiting patterns. Uh, of all the web pages and all the particular web pages that we visit all, uh, on the web across different websites. So using cookies, um, DoubleClick, now part of Google, uh, was able to collect a profile of all the pages, all the web pages that I visited and that you visited and that uh, the listeners visited um, over, over their basically their lifetime. And mm. this is very, very privacy sensitive because the, these, these could be pages about uh, gambling or um, uh, addiction or uh, medicine use or health or all these kind of things. So cookies are a great example of the kind of technology that, you know, originally had a good use, but they are very leaky and suddenly they can be used against us. This is fascinating. Yeah, just so much to think about. Absolutely. So so if we reflect a little bit on uh, society uh, concerns about privacy, so why has this debate has uh, been accelerating? Um, well, I think for several reasons. I think the, the technological advances uh, have uh, brought this much more to the fore. I think one of the things that I also mentioned in the book that is the, the, the fact that the Snowden revelations at least opened the eyes to many people about the, the extent of uh, governance surveillance. Uh, and government surveillance, not only uh, uh, nationally, but also internationally. Uh, stories like uh, Cambridge Analytica, the, 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 the story that uh, a company used data from Facebook to influence elections, for instance, in the United States. Um, 
also showed that um, the lack of privacy uh, can have uh, enormous consequences. They can essentially alter the outcome of an election. Now, if that happens, well, people start paying attention. So because of these things, you, you, you see more and more uh, 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 articles in the press, in the, in the newspapers about uh, uh, things related to privacy, uh, data breaches, but also the effect of uh, privacy uh, uh, infringements on, on, other, on society at large. So this, I think, explains a bit the, 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 the importance uh, and the, the, more, the, the larger amount of attention that is being given to this topic. And also, of course, the fact that the, the bigger companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, um, those are the, the biggest ones that collect a, a large amount of information, at least in the Western world. Of course, you have things like Tencent, Alibaba, and others in, in China. Um, they have enormous power. And they get more and more power because they have all the data and they have all the computing infrastructure. And, uh, and what does that do uh, in terms of our autonomy, our sovereignty? Um, so you actually see that the debate is a bit shifting now to mm. not only privacy, but also these larger issues like what does it mean if all the education that we are because this is something that's happening in, in, in the Netherlands, at least, and also in other countries in, in Europe. Uh, more and more universities are going, going to the cloud for almost all their uh, uh, computing infrastructure and all the stuff that they use for teaching or administering exams, these kind of things. And they're mostly American cloud-based companies. That means that you, you lose a lot of control as universities, but also mm. as a country. Because, I mean, this is not only universities happening doing this, but also... Uh, uh, governments, uh, other big uh, and smaller companies in countries. Um, how dependent are we on this uh, infrastructure and how much control do we really have over this infrastructure? Th those are questions that are now starting starting to be asked. And this is, I think, a good thing. So is there a way for us uh, to know how much privacy can we give, give away for uh, receiving optimal services or is it is it really not possible because we have to give up give up something but how is it possible to do um well i would say that uh, that's not the right question to ask to be mm -hmm. honest it's not the question of how much privacy should we give away the the question is first what is it that we want to do what do we want to achieve and uh, that is the first question and depending on that question, the answer to that question, the second question is then, how can we do that? And do we necessarily have to do that in a privacy-infringing way? Um, and this is, in many cases, I guess, the, the, the whole point of my book is that in many cases, the answer is, well, I mean, you can easily do that in a way that is not or much less privacy-invasive than you would think. So if you start with the question, how much privacy should we give up? Well, then you, you basically give in and you, you, you do not even start the fight or at least the argument. And you should first start with, okay, what do you want to achieve? I think the, um, uh, a nice example, actually, is the, uh, the, the discussion we are having now about, for instance, uh, uh, Corona COVID-19 passports, vaccination passports or testing passports. And a discussion that uh, was very, very active last year about contact tracing for uh, COVID-19, 
where the initial systems for contact tracing were really just saying like, just send us all the contact and uh, location information to a central server, and then we can decide who was in contact with whom. Of course, that works, but it's mm. very privacy invasive. And again, the question again, and also in the Netherlands, there was a, there was a proposal to to build a contact tracing system, and there was no no, there was actually no discussion about why is this system necessary, and if this system is necessary, what kind of functionality should it offer. Those questions were not asked. It was really the other way around. It was really like, we need to build a system and it has to do this and this and this. Um, this is something that Evgeny Morozov calls uh, tech solutionalism. And the idea that you can you can solve any problem in the world by just applying a kind of technology and then the problem is solved. Um, this is typically the, the wrong way to look at things. You first have to look at the problem and then think about how to solve that problem. And then what my book shows is that you can actually solve that problem in a in a privacy friendly uh, way uh, more much more often than you think. And yeah? privacy isn't hard um, if you try, really. Oh, that's an excellent insight. Uh, thank you. So, what kind of regulations and architectures, perhaps on a systems level, are necessary for us to actually utilize this private information in the, in an the efficient way? So, so one of the so one of the things that uh, I think is a powerful strategy to to build systems in a much more privacy friendly way is to really process the information on the user endpoints. So, really use mm. your own phone, own computer, and to rely to a much lesser extent on cloud based solutions or central database solutions. So, really going to a much more peer to peer kind of approach uh, would solve many of the problems. But it's important to realize it will not solve all of the problems because still, even if the data is processed and stored and analyzed locally on your phone, the question still is, what happens with that result? What happens to, with the result of that analysis? If, if Facebook, for instance, let's say, let, let's go back to the example of Facebook as a social network and suppose Facebook was implemented as a peer-to-peer network. So there's no central server. The, the, the straightforward way of doing that means that Facebook learns nothing. Now, if the business model of Facebook still is like the business model it has now, mm. Facebook would want to have that information. Now, it still, still could get that information by just running the algorithms, the analysis of what we like, what our preferences are, and the kind of stuff that they sell to their advertisers. They could actually run that analysis also on the phone. So then everything runs locally. So Facebook as a company never gets to see my personal data, but it still gets to see that I, let's say, like cats um, and happen to go to to work uh, every Wednesday or these kind of things. So you, you, you actually, by processing locally, you prevent central collection of the, 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 the personal data, but then you have to look at other things, namely the question of where does the analysis take place? Uh, that is still something that you then have to regulate and control. So have you had any new insights or discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Privacy is Hard and Seven Other Myths? Um, I, I guess, that, I guess the, uh, the most important insight was that there were, over the last 30, 40 years, so many technologies and ideas already have been invented or have been developed that actually uh, would help protect our privacy. 
uh, that in a way it is surprising that they are not used uh, or that they are used so little. Um, it's so in a sense I didn't dis- I, in a sense for me myself I didn't really discover anything new, but I did discover that the the breadth of the kind of solutions and and the kind of things you can do to protect privacy or that we as society could do to protect our, uh, our privacy uh, is potentially much larger and it's in a way uh, very much underutilized. So it's it's really about this potential of using the technology to protect ourselves and to pre- protect our citizens or to protect your customers. That's what this book is about. Well, I was actually wondering, as, as the privacy invading gadgets are now, which one would you never consider getting? Oh, I guess many. I mean, I, so so uh, I don't have a smart watch. Actually, I don't have a watch. Uh, I've never I, somehow I never want, uh, liked having a watch on my wrist. So that so that's an easy decision. Mm. But something like a, uh, a remote controllable thermostat, like a Nest, I would not have. Um, I'm I'm. I'm really not on Facebook. I actually am on Facebook, but that's a dead profile that I think now exists uh, 20 years. So, but I'm not. Um, so I'm really like I'm very selective in the in the kind of things that I use and don't use. But it's also not the case that I'm very like um, uh, very strict. So I, I do use uh, uh, shared calendars. Um, uh, I use some cl- a little bit of cloud uh, solutions. Um, but but only to a very limited extent, and it's basically and I think you know being in the position to to really know the kind of technology and understand what the technology does helps me to to make a kind of like risk assessment or a trade off like okay I um, I want to be able to do certain things uh, and to be able to do that I need to use this service and I'm aware of the fact that it invades some of my privacy but not to an extent that I worry too much but I mean this is a matter of you no. Know, uh, Picking the the, the services uh, in a, in a careful way. So I'm I'm on Signal, for instance. I'm not on WhatsApp. Uh, these kind of like simple things. It looks like you're not a target customer for the new health checking toilet that can recognize the user just taking a picture of their bottom. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So, what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project? So, so one of the things that I, uh, I do is uh, I, I'm, I'm not only working at the computer science uh, department in, in, in Nijmegen at the Radboud University, but I also work in the IT law section of the University of Groningen. And I'm the only computer scientist uh, among a, a bunch of lawyers there. Uh, and what I do there is uh, teach a course called IT in the context of the law. So basically telling our bachelor students uh, about IT technology and helping them understand what technology is. In a way, a little bit similar to what the book already does uh, that I wrote. Um, and that's an interesting experience uh, to, to try to explain to lawyers uh, how IT works in a way that they can sort of like use that in their future careers as IT lawyer. Um, and I discovered, I, I use a book, uh, and it's a reasonably good book, but it's a bit old and it covers certain, it doesn't cover all the topics that I would want to cover. So I'm actually uh, started writing a second book, sort of in draft, uh, that is uh, tentatively called uh, IT in the context of the law. Uh, and that should really be a kind of like uh, undergrad course book uh, that 
I intend to finish in, in maybe one or two years. Um, let's see how fast I write this time. Because the, the book that I that uh, this book and privacy is hard, um, in the end took like five years to write because I changed like course several times uh, during the writing process. Excellent, but sounds like a very interesting project. Well, where can, where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, well, the the mo- yeah, well, so the book. Uh, just look at the uh, MIT Press uh, website. If you're interested in my book, in my work, uh, uh, you could uh, visit my uh, my own personal website, and the URL is xot.nl, and that will get you to um, a lot of different stuff that I did, including a blog that I maintain, and in that blog I write I write about uh, privacy, security, and the impact of technology on society, and uh, in the coming weeks, actually. Uh, I will uh, post uh, sort of like teaser summary um, uh, posts summarizing the chapters of the book. So that will give the uh, uh, people listening today more information uh, about what is what the book is about and what the different chapters are about. So if you go to blog, blog.xot.nl, then uh, soon you will find all the information that you need. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been truly illuminating discussion. Thank you, Galina. It was a real pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for the invitation.